That was great, Matt. And I, I don't you know, necessarily say that to praise men, although honor those who are worthy of honor, but it, it reminded me of how historically at Terra Nova, one of the things that we've really valued is people using the gifts God's given them to, um, uh, to, to minister to each other. Um, and, and a big part of that has been through music. Um, uh, liturgies and music have lo- kind of long been a part of the heritage of Terra Nova, uh, of something we've tried to engage our people in being a part of creatively. So as we talk about during Advent, um, anticipating the incarnation of Jesus, God becoming man, one of our core values at Terra Nova that you've probably heard us talk about, especially if you've been to a nucleus class, is incarnational, that we are extensions of what it means um, that Jesus incarnated. And part of the way in which we do that is through imaging to the world around us um, who our God is through creativity. And so just blessed uh, by that song. And uh, um, yeah, it was one of those things where I'm like, wait, is this the one that our crew wrote? And I had to wait till the end for the credits because I was like, that's really good. Um, so love when God's people use their gifts to bring glory to him. Um, at the risk of being a little bit redundant because Matt set us up, Pastor Matt set us up nicely with an introduction to what Advent is, I do want to just kind of say again, Advent is um, this time in which we are actively awaiting um, the arrival of a significant person or event, in particular for Christians, would be actively awaiting the arrival of Jesus. And the only thing I want to kind of go a little bit narrow and deep on there is that word actively. I think that's important. I think Matt said expectantly, which is another really good word, but actively stuck out to me this Advent as I was beginning to think about preparing for today. Because when you're actively doing something or actively waiting for something, you're actually doing something to build anticipation for that thing you're waiting for as opposed to just kind of waiting passively and all of a sudden it happens upon you, right? So trivial example, this might be like for those who are grill masters out there and love steaks, you know, the difference between marinating a steak overnight and having thought about and prepared that ahead of time versus remembering at the last second, throwing it into a Ziploc bag for an hour and then throwing it on the grill. There's a big difference in the end product, right? There's a payoff to actually being active and intentional in preparing that steak to be grilled and to be eaten. And so likewise, Advent helps to build anticipation in our hearts towards not something trivial like a steak, but awaiting and celebrating the greatest gift known to mankind that was ever given, God's own son, Jesus Christ. Or in the language of Matthew 25 that we've been using over the past few weeks, it's about preparing for Jesus' arrival so that when he comes, we're not caught off guard or unprepared or unawares or afraid, but we actually celebrate. We look forward to it, and we rejoice all the more when he comes. This Advent, we're going to be, as Matt said, uh, meditating through the four names that we see in probably one of the most popular verses quoted at Christmas of all time, Isaiah 9, 6. And so I'm going to read that verse to you now so it's fresh in your mind and then kind of unpack with you uh, a little bit of kind of the history behind Isaiah's prophecy. This will be the only week I'll do that at any level of depth. The other weeks will kind of focus more in on the names. But here's what Isaiah 9, 6 tells us. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, it's important to kind of create some historical setting here. Isaiah actually wrote down 
these words for the people from God to the people of Israel around the 8th century B.C. So about 700 plus years before Jesus showed up on the scene. So, and talk about a period of waiting, right? The people of Israel, their advent was a long, long time. But in some ways, our circumstances today, even as 21st century Christians, are not all that different. See, those four names that were given by Isaiah to the people of God were still true of God then. All of those attributes and characteristics were true of God then, even if they would manifest more fully upon the future arrival of this Messiah that was being prophesied. For us now, Jesus has already come 2,000 years ago, and we experience the reality of those names differently, don't we, on this side of the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We understand it differently. We benefit from it differently than the people did then. But there's still a now and a not yet to our living out and experiencing these names of God. Right? There are still days in which these names feel foreign to us. There are still days in which it's hard for us to see how these names of God, these attributes of his are applicable to our lives. And it's hard to see how they have bearing on our lives right now. There's a not yet component to these things, even for us on this side of the cross and the resurrection. And the reason that is, and this is where we have something very much in common with 8th century Israel, is because we await a future in which Jesus will return, a second coming. And when he does, he's going to usher in his kingdom in all of its perfection, eliminate all injustice and sin, and our experience of him as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace will be perfect and unhindered by this world that we presently live in with sin and brokenness. So this time of Advent isn't just about building anticipation for the blessing of what's already happened so we can remember Jesus' birth freshly each year. It's also about building anticipation for the blessing that is yet to come, even for us. But waiting is hard. And if waiting is not hard for you, for things that are significant, important, and take a long time, please come to me and tell me the secret that you have. I would like to know. Because by nature, we as humans are short-sighted. And by nature, we as humans are impatient. And what happens when we are short-sighted and impatient is we're quick to take matters into our own hands. And then functionally, what happens is we start to forget God. And I don't mean we forget the empirical truths that we can say about him that we know are theologically true. What I mean is we lose a fear of the Lord. We lose an awe of God. The fear and awe that the scriptures tell us in the Proverbs is the beginning of wisdom. And this is what was happening in Isaiah's day. This is why God through Isaiah prophesied the things that he did to his people. And one of those things that God exposed was areas of sin and idolatry in the life of God's people that had crept into their hearts slowly but surely over time. And they're not all that different than the ones that we find ourselves tempted to today. So it's worth actually going through a few and just seeing the similarity of God's people across the generations. One of the things that we see early on in chapter 1 of Isaiah is that they began to worship God for show rather than worship him because he was worthy of it and out of humility and awe for who he was. Slowly but surely, ritual, especially the sacrificial system God had given them, went from humble worship to showy presentation. 
Now, the sacrificial system that God had given to Israel had lost its purpose, but its purpose was never that it truly was able to take away our sin. Instead, God's purpose for the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was to shock and sober his people into the seriousness of the consequences of sin, and so bring about in them a humility and a dependence upon him who is merciful. But instead, for them, it became an opportunity to prove their spirituality to themselves and to those around them. We see that there was greed that crept into Israel at this time. When God blessed Israel with economic prosperity, they went from generously sharing from the abundance of what they had with those who were more in need, because they were aware that all they had came from God to begin with, to becoming miserly and greedy and keeping way more than they needed for themselves. And so there was this big economic disparity that's in view in Isaiah amongst the people of Israel between the rich and the poor because they'd lost sight of God. We see that they were slaves to comfort, that their experiences of recreation and enjoying God and his good gifts went from something that actually helped them to enjoy him and be more intimate with him to something instead that became sources of comfort that they worshiped or became slaves to. We see this in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 11 to 12. It says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them all day. They're just indulging themselves. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. They become slaves to comfort. They have broken moral compasses. This is another example of functionally what happens when we forget God. We see a complete reversal of the people's moral compasses in Isaiah, kind of like a 20th century version of postmodernism. Listen to this, Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And the logical end result of that is thinking that we are wise in our own eyes when in fact we're fools. As it says in Isaiah 5.21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Is that not increasingly what we see happening around us in our world and what we find ourselves increasingly tempted by to celebrate the things that should in fact be lamented or that we should be horrified by? Or on the other hand, to despise that which we should be celebrating as incredible examples of truth and goodness and beauty in this world. It's the day and age in which we live. Then at the end of chapter 8, in the lead up to this great prophecy that we are focusing on during Advent in chapter 9, we see a couple more examples. First, the, the people are consumed by conspiracies. All kinds of ideas as to why as to what's going to happen, that are great burdens to the people of Israel as they worry about what's to come. Verse 12 of chapter 8, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. That was God's words actually to Isaiah, to not be like his people Israel who were fearing conspiracy everywhere they turned. They were buying into every conspiracy that came along and living with a, just in a, a state of constant fear. Slavery to fear. And then verses later, we see they're also anxious about the future. 
And the way they dealt with that was by listening to their fellow man rather than listening to God. In verse 19 of chapter 8, we see a desperate attempt to find peace through knowing how the future is going to unfold by turning to mediums and necromancers, which were basically the secular sages and prophets of Israel's day. The sad thing is, here's what was, was happening. If you sum especially those last few up, the people of God were looking for explanations of the events and answers for the future that, that completely left God out of the equation. And so the natural result of that is they were looking at the world around them and they were scared because they did not see God as a part of it. God was no longer in control. He wasn't sovereign over the events of mankind, which is functionally what happens when we forget about our God, even if we still claim him as a God. More and more, I just see how, as I read the Bible, similar the issues are in my own heart to my fellow man across the ages and how relevant this book is to us. And the overlap isn't coincidence. It's the plight of all humanity when man replaces God as God, when man puts himself in the position of God instead of God being there. When we believe that we are wise enough to have all of the answers, when we believe we are mighty enough to be able to provide for our own needs, when we believe we're good enough to be able to satisfy all our desires, it's delusion. It's not true. But the scary part is when we see ourselves as the solution, the ultimate solution, and we can't see beyond ourselves, there's no possible alternative ending than death and despair. And that's exactly how things play out at the end of this dark chapter of Isaiah chapter 9, just before the light breaks in, in chapter 9. Chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, this is going to be the outcome if the people don't turn their hearts back to God. Isaiah prophesies that they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and against their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This language was a foreshadowing of the coming exiles that would come upon both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel, the Assyrian and in turn Babylonian uh, invasions in which God's people will be ripped out of their land and taken into captivity. And yet, and yet, despite all of that, God in his great mercy intervenes. That's what chapter 9 of Isaiah's prophecy here is all about, the gracious intervention of God, culminating, of course, in our verse for Advent. Let me read that to you one more time, starting in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness, the people whom Isaiah was presently prophesying to, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And then speaking of God, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil, as in the joy that follows a victory in battle. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Speaking of Gideon and the 300 men that improbably came away with a victory by God's hand against thousands of Midianites. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle 
tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Speaking of a day in which war will be no more and the implements and accoutrements of war will be no more. That's what God is going to do. How is he going to do that, though? Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So, in the midst of man's forgetfulness, in the midst of man's self-reliance and being consumed with himself as the solution and the answer, God intervenes with the promise of this one in Isaiah 9, 6, who would come to provide for his people what they had tried to provide for themselves, by themselves, and had failed. One who would be the solution to the problem that the people had falsely assumed they'd already found the solution to in themselves. And these names, when rightly understood, can't be attributed to any mere man. They can only be attributed to God. And yet, this Savior is said to be born into this world as a baby, a son. And so, one of the paradoxes of the incarnation, in which God enters this world in great humility and weakness, and that humility and weakness would actually be what overcomes and conquers our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And so for these four weeks, I want us to consider how each of these names are a part of the remedy for our greatest needs, which only Jesus can provide, but which mankind, we ourselves even, will have the natural inclination and tendency to try to fix or provide for ourselves. And they are wonderful counselor which we'll look at this week. That speaks to Jesus' unique qualification to be king, which I hadn't mentioned, but really that whole passage in Isaiah chapter 9, speaking of what God will do and how he'll do it, it's, it's a very, very much a picture of a conquering king. And so this king is uniquely qualified to rule because he alone has the wisdom, our wonderful counselor, to rule with perfect justice and mercy. He's also mighty God. This speaks to his unique identification as ruler. In other words, as God, this one would have the power to execute his wise plans. He will be our everlasting father, which can be a really confusing one, which we'll talk more in a few weeks when we get to. But you've got to remember that the doctrine of the Trinity was not fully formed in the Old Testament. This isn't speaking of the first person of the Trinity, but the fatherly characteristics of this one who would come. And it speaks to his goodness, his providential care, and even discipline of his people. And it means then that his plans can be trusted because he is the everlasting father. And then finally, the prince of peace, which speaks to his unique purpose in his rule, the outcome of his rule, which will be peace, peace inside, which we so dearly long for, peace between our fellow man and peace between us and God. That would be the ultimate outcome, will be the ultimate outcome of the rule and reign of this Messiah, this king spoken of here in Isaiah 9, 6. So let's look briefly at wonderful counselor. 
the unique qualification of Jesus to be the ruling king, that he alone has the wisdom to rule with perfect justice and mercy. Of course, man's natural tendency, my natural tendency on my worst days, is to look to myself for the wisdom that I need. And what often happens is we will dismiss true wisdom for knowledge. But the thing is, what we call knowledge sometimes is just the information that we think is true, that makes sense to us. And when we exchange wisdom for knowledge, then we become fools. It's pervasive throughout the Proverbs. Those are not the same things, right? Perhaps our 21st century version of what the Proverbs talk about in terms of, and even Paul later in the New Testament, um, how knowledge puffs up um, and knowledge in and of itself is not wisdom, is information and mistaking information as wisdom, right? There's more information available to us today than there has been at any other point in time in history, hands down. Problem is most of the time it comes to us and 280 characters or less in these small little sound bites. On top of this, there are countless influencers out there who are trying to captivate our hearts and minds through these short, pithy, drop-the-mic statements that they make. But how much of our liking of those things, whether literally you're, you're hitting the like button or you're just internally, yeah, I agree with that, how much of that do we know to be true wisdom? What's your criteria, your basis for knowing that the things that you are liking are true wisdom? What is your measure of that? You may have heard the analogy before, it's a pretty common one, it's helpful, of how federal agents um, are trained to be able to spot counterfeit money um, by being trained to identify the characteristics of true currency. And so when they get really good at that, then they're able to identify easily the fakes. As Christians, we have to do the same thing in order to be able to exercise the discernment to understand what is true wisdom. But we can't, what we can't do is make the mistake um, of the ways in which we are accustomed to intaking information in small little tidbits and sound bites, emails and texts and Twitter and blogs and articles, such short little bits of information. We can't mistake that method as the way to get to know truth because truth isn't information, truth is a person. Wisdom is a person ultimately. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He is wisdom incarnate. So what does a wonderful counselor look like? I actually think the best place to go to that is to look at the probably best passage or clearest passage that explains to us the incarnation, what it means that God took on flesh and became man and dwelt among us. And that's John 1, 14. If you want to see what a wonderful counselor looks like, then look at him in all of his per perfection as described here in this verse, where we're told that the word became flesh, he dwelt among us, so he was present with his people, and he was full of grace and full of truth. In, the in a nutshell, that is the incarnation. He had all of those things in their perfection all of the time. And if you're lacking any one of those things, what ends up happening is a distorted representation or reflection of the wonderful counselor. So for example, if you have only presence and grace, but no truth, then you'll be a really fun person to hang out with. People will enjoy your company. But in the end, that's a rudderless love. 
It's directionless counsel. It doesn't lead people anywhere. If you have only presence and truth, but no grace, well, you may be present in a literal sense, but if you, if you never experience compassion for people, if you never actually help to bear the burdens that may have even been self-inflicted because of someone's sin, and all you're doing is speaking truth into their life, then it could easily become spiritual abuse. And that's a harmful form of counsel. And if you have truth and grace, but no presence in people's lives, then that just becomes self-serving. What, what good is that? It's useless counsel. It's, it's the man who buried his talent that we talked about a few weeks ago and did nothing with it. Jesus was all three of these things present with us, full of truth and full of grace. Now, when we look at the gospel, that may vary in emphasis from scene to scene based upon Jesus's spiritual sensitivity as to what was needed in the moment, but he was perfectly all three of these things all of the time. He wasn't as a wonderful counselor. By the way, that is what is meant by wonderful. Wonderful in the Hebrew is actually the, the word in Hebrew that's closest to supernatural, which means other than, holy, other, right? Different, unique, set apart. It means Jesus's counsel transcends that of man's. It means he is always right. It means his counsel is always perfect. So that Jesus is our wonderful counselor means we can trust his words, always. That distinguished from the counsel of man. We actually have to be careful and measure the counsel of man that we receive, whether that's amongst each other, whether that's from your pastors from the pulpit, A good example of this comes from the book of Acts, where you see Paul traveling. Paul, the great missionary who's traveling, and one of the places he goes is Berea, and the Berean church, what were they known for? They didn't just take for granted what Paul said is true. They actually measured it against the scriptures that they'd already had revealed to them. In principle, it's also what we see happening here in the book of Isaiah, where after admonishing the people in chapter 8 for consulting with mediums and necromancers. What does Isaiah call them back to at the end of chapter 8, verse 20? He says, to the teaching, to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, God's word, it is because they have no dawn, or in other translations, no light in them. Jesus alone, as the wonderful counselor, is the measure of all truth. And the measure of all truth, by the way, is not always what we want to hear. It's not always what makes sense to us. Sometimes we'll hear some good advice that's given to us, and we think, well, that makes a lot of sense. If I apply that to my life and practice that, that's probably going to be good for me. But that doesn't necessarily make it true. How often do we see the disciples in the Gospels chafe against Jesus' words? Think Peter in Matthew 16 when he pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. Truth doesn't always make sense to us at first glance. But we will never seek Jesus' counsel in vain. We will never put Jesus' counsel into practice in vain. We may receive advice from a friend that we regret. We will never receive and put into practice counsel from Jesus that we will regret because he's the wonderful counselor. And so because he's the wonderful counselor, we can trust his words, but not only that, we can trust his ways. 
Right? His perfect counsel not only informs his words to us, but his plans for us, even when we don't fully understand. Practically, by the way, this is probably the harder of these two things for us to grasp and receive. Sometimes his words we can assent to, and they don't have any bearing or impact upon our life in the immediate present. It's not always his words that bother us, but sometimes it's the circumstances of our life that bother us that in his divine wisdom he has ordained. You see, nothing happens to you or to me or in this world around us that falls outside of God's divine counsel to us. And I realize that's a a bit of a mysterious thing. It doesn't mean, though, that God is the author of evil. But he is sovereign over your pain. He's sovereign over your lost job. He is sovereign over the loss of a loved one. He is sovereign over the minor and major inconveniences that you experience and encounter on a daily basis. He's sovereign over your shattered dreams. And you may not understand it, but what feels foolish to you is actually the wonderful counselor working out his wise plans for you, for your good. There's a a song that I'm sure that at least some here are familiar with, um, a Christian worship song called Reckless Love. Um, It's talking about God's love, and it's either really bad theology or it's just an example of verbal irony where the author is saying the opposite of what he actually means. But either way, it makes this point. God's love is so other to us in this world that it doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't make sense from the world's perspective. It's reckless. God sending his son into this world to die for this world, to somehow be the solution to our problems, seems foolish and reckless to us. But in God's infinite wisdom, it was not only the epitome of love, the greatest expression and example of love that ever could have been demonstrated, but it was also the perfect plan, in fact, the only plan to bring about the salvation of us. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he says, for the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And again later in that chapter, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God stronger than men. And again, just another example of verbal irony. It's not that he actually believes God is foolish or weak. It just appears to be to the prideful human heart. See, the security of knowing Jesus today as your wonderful counselor is not only the confidence you can have to trust that his words are wise, but that we can trust that his ways are wise as well, including the plans that he has for your life. So I want to leave you with a question today to consider and ponder. You'll have a couple of minutes to reflect on this after I pray. And here's the question. Because Jesus is your wonderful counselor, what that you wish was different about your life can you trust to be a part of his perfect plan for you? Or put a little bit differently, What that seems like foolishness to you 
can you trust to be a part of God's wise plan for your life? Let me pray and then spend some time praying and asking God to bring clarity into your heart and mind to the answer to that question. Lord, we, we praise you. We praise you this morning for the gift of your son who is the wonderful counselor to us. He is perfectly wise in all of his words and in all of his ways, including the paths that we have walked in the past as well as that which yet still lies before us. We thank you that we can trust that he is our wonderful counselor. So Lord, as we consider and ponder in our hearts this question this morning, would you illuminate the place that you're calling us to trust you more in your wisdom, even if it doesn't make sense to us? And I want to be so bold as to ask that you'd graciously give us eyes to see as wise those things that you have ordained in our lives, which we are tempted to call foolishness. I pray this in the precious and powerful name of your son, Jesus, for his glory and for our greater joy. Amen.